You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by John Brennan, the former director of the Central Intelligence Agency, who was sworn in in 2013, shortly after the beginning of President Obama's second term. Before becoming director, he served at the White House for four years as assistant to the president for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism. Mr. Brennan began his service in government at the CIA, where he worked from 1980 to 2005. He spent most of his early career in the agency's main analytic arm, the director of analysis, at the time the director of intelligence, specializing in the Near East and South Asia before directing counterterrorism analysis in the early 1990s. In 94 and 95, he was the agency's intelligence briefer to President Bill Clinton. After an assignment as chief of station in the Middle East and I'm not sure if that's public, but you can certainly Google where he was. Mr. Brennan served from 99 to 2001 as chief of staff to George Tenet, who was then director of central intelligence. He next worked as deputy executive director at the CIA until 2003, when he began leading a multi-agency effort to establish what would later become the National Counterterrorism Center. In 2004, he became the center's interim director before retiring from CIA in 2005. Welcome, Mr. Brennan. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Well, thank you very much, Vince. Thanks for the invitation. So anytime I have someone who spent as long of a career as you did in public service, I, 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 I want to ask the question because a lot, a lot of our listeners are trying to figure out what they want to be when they grow up. Some of them have already grown up, but they're trying to figure out what they want to be long term. So was CIA always the plan? Is it something that you thought about in high school or you thought about in college as a career working for the government in that capacity? Well, it, it wasn't something that um, I focused on early on, uh, although I will point out that I was a avid reader of American history when I was younger. And uh, I read about Nathan Hale, uh, the nation's first spy, who was hanged by the British on September 22nd of 1776. And I um, noted that uh, the day he was hanged on was also the date of my birth, September 22nd, uh, 1955, not 1776. (laughs) But so I had a certain affinity to the nation's first spy. And so I became interested in the role of intelligence. But I... um, pursued my studies with an eye toward um, learning about the world. And so I didn't know whether or not I wanted to uh, join the Foreign Service or uh, become involved in intelligence. But I had spent some time overseas, uh, the summer of my freshman year of college uh, in Indonesia, and then at the American University in Cairo uh, during my junior year. 
And so I had some experience uh, living abroad uh, and also had some Arabic. And so as I was in graduate school and I was looking for uh, employment, um, the, uh, the agency had, had run a, an advertisement in the New York Times that I had seen while I was in graduate school at Fordham saying that they were looking for some people to join the agency. I, I submitted my rather you know, sparse uh, resume, uh, but they sent me an application and they told me that if I went to graduate school uh, about six months or so before I graduated to mail it in, uh, which I did, and then I was hired in 1980. So I th- it wasn't as though CIA was something I had always aspired to. Um, I think in my first 10 or 15 years of life, I wanted to be the first American pope. <laughs> uh, and I was planning to go into the priesthood and then uh, moved away from that uh, path uh, to a one that got me more interested in uh, serving uh, in some capacity with the government on the national security uh, international affairs front. Well, with, with your travel experience and your language skills, you could have easily been an operator. I mean, w- did you have an idea about the, what the director of operations did? Did you choose analysis on purpose or was it just kind of the way your career went? Uh, in fact, I entered the agency um, with the director of operations um, because of the Arabic, because of my overseas experience. And so I was... Uh, on the path to becoming a case officer. And I was in the career training program uh, for my first year, and I had served a rotational assignment in the the analytic branch of the agency. And uh, I felt as though that was a better mic- better match for me and my interests. And there were some things that I had uh, experienced uh, in my interactions with uh, the DO at that time that uh, I had some issues with. Uh, I think there were some people that I had uh, met that may not have been the the best examples mm. of uh, case officers. Uh, so I, I I felt that I I wanted to make the change early in my career to be a, a career analyst at CIA. Well, you said career analyst. At what point did you go from the CIA could be an interesting job to this is going to be my career? Was there a specific turning point where you said I can see myself doing this for the next thirty years or for the rest of my adult life? In many cases. Well, when I joined the agency in 1980, I didn't know how long a career was going to be uh, because no matter how much reading you do and how much uh, you talk to people who serve in the agency, you really don't know what it's like until you're, mm-hmm. you're there. And so I had some opportunities early in my career to serve overseas. Um, I served a rotation with the Department of State as a political officer uh, from 1982 to 84 um, uh, in uh, Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, when all of the embassies in Saudi Arabia were located in Jeddah. And so it gave me a great opportunity to see how a embassy um, operates, uh, the interaction between the different components. And it allowed me then to further refine my Arabic language skills. Uh, and I became more and more intrigued with opportunities that presented themselves within CIA. And I, I tended to bounce around in CIA. I, I wasn't somebody who was interested in trying to get the next promotion as quickly as possible. Uh, I wanted to learn as much as I could about the intelligence mission, how the different parts of the agency fit together. Uh, and so I had just tremendous good fortune in having jobs that I found challenging, interesting, and ones that continue to motivate me to stay in the agency. So I don't think there was ever a conscious decision that I made that, okay, I am going to stay for 25 years. Um, it, it was just, I was just thrilled to have the opportunity to be a CI officer, uh, thrilled at the opportunity to work with some tremendously dedicated and smart uh, women and men, and to be part of something that was larger than myself mm-hmm. um, as 
I mentioned to my, my wife when we first got married, um, I'm never going to be rich. Uh, <laughs> I overachieved uh, <laughs> in some respects on that. Uh, but I was rewarded in so many other ways in terms right. of just the psychic rewards that go with being a CIA officer. And I never dreamed when I was at the agency that I would ever have the great honor of being called director of CIA. Uh, but um, maybe I just happened to be in the right place at the right time throughout my career that I was a witness to not just a lot of CIA's history, but a lot of U.S. history mm -hmm. and serving abroad, uh, interacting with uh, presidents and heads of state and heads of government. Uh, it was just a tremendously enriching and rewarding career. I've met a lot of late 20s, early 30s former CIA analysts and case officers who, because of the operational tempo of the last 15 years in the war on terror, because CIA perhaps wasn't what they expected from spy movies or anything else, decided to go in a different direction. And I've certainly talked to a lot of people who are still in the IC, for not just CIA, but across the board who are kind of having this moment of, of choice where they're, they're still employed, but they're trying to figure out, is it worth continuing on? It, you know, it's been tough for a lot of people, uh, particularly analysts who thought they were going to be sitting at Langley, you know, reading, reading documents and they're instead forward deployed and doing things that they perhaps weren't expecting to do. Can you provide any advice or what would you say to that people are trying to make that decision about, am I going to stick it out? Am I going to make this into a career instead of just a stepping point to a K Street job or work for Lockheed? Well, I guess my advice would be uh, to officers who join the agency is to be prepared to uh, carry out um, assignments and duties that maybe you didn't anticipate when you came in. Uh, try to make the best of it. Um, try to uh, learn throughout the process and realize that you are gaining valuable experience as a sea officer that I think will will help you uh, in your career. To me, it's so critically important the the quality of the lead and leadership of the first line supervisor. Because, uh, and I have heard uh, concerns and complaints within CIA that officers who come into the agency maybe they gave up another professional career that they felt unsatisfied mm -hmm. and uh, it wasn't what they expected and. Um, there's a problem, I think, if if any CI officer does not feel that his or her talents are being utilized fully. And I think they need to speak up. Um, the CIA is not a, a, a perfect match for everybody, mm -hmm. but the CIA has a tremendous array of, of assignments, of responsibilities that I think that there is a niche that anyone can, can find that's going to be rewarding, satisfying, and challenging. And so, and that's what I did in my agency career. You know, I, I did pursue opportunities that were, you know, maybe a little bit deviating from the, the path of a, a normal analytic career. But I tried to look at my career as an opportunity to um, amass as, as much experience, as much uh, knowledge as possible about the intelligence business. So um, I would just encourage individuals who are in the agency and feel less than satisfied and feel that they're not making the contribution they can to speak to their mm -hmm. supervisors and try to uh, fix the situation um, because the, the CIA is, is a very, very special place. And I like to think that everybody should be hitting on all cylinders. Right. Your, your career spanned some pretty dramatic world-changing events. You know, look at the end of the Cold War, certainly 9-11. Um, 
and my question is preambled somewhat on my experiences in the 1990s. And when I was in the military, we were still wearing woodland camouflage BDUs. When our vehicles came in, they we had I was at Fort Hood. We were painting them desert colors. They came in green. And then at a certain point, everything shifted. All the new spare parts came in already tan colored. Uniforms all of a sudden were no longer woodland camouflage. I noticed the sea change from a very low level. Was there a broader sea change at CIA around the same time, a refocusing of attention in the mid to late 90s toward a realization that we'd be fighting a whole lot of future wars in the Middle East? Um, or, or, I mean, there's this, I, I think, un, unrealistic expectation that we could see 9-11 coming from a mile away. But at the same time, there were tea leaves to be read that we were going to be doing a lot of work in the Middle East and Southwest Asia. Did, was there a moment where you kind of looked around and said, okay, we're, we're shifting our focus here? Well, the collapse of the Soviet Union clearly had a profound impact on world events as well as on the intelligence mission. Not just because the Soviet Union was no longer there, because it was Russia and a number of other republics, but also the bipolar struggle you know, throughout the world was no longer gone. gone. Yeah. But the challenges to U.S. national security interests were manifesting themselves in different ways. So I think it was a period of transition from the late 80s to the late 90s. I think there were some you know, fits and starts uh, about it. But I think it was uh, you know, quite evident uh, pretty early on uh, when Saddam Hussein moved into Kuwait and uh, that the U.S. was going to then reclaim Kuwait uh, from Iraqi hands and that there was going to be a, a real emphasis on the Middle East. Uh, the Middle East had already consumed a fair amount of our attention with uh, terrorism by Hezbollah mm. and because of Palestinian issues and whatever else. And then you know Iran with the uh, takeover of the Iranian revolution. Uh, so um, I, I think there was a, a gravitational pull to certain areas, regions and issues. Uh, but at the same time, I think we recognize, uh, particularly CIA, we have global responsibilities. And, and that's the real challenge for CIA. You have a finite amount of resources um, and you need to dedicate them to all of the issues that could hurt U.S. national security interests. And sometimes uh, areas of emphasis and priority would shift from one administration to the next. But CIA could never uh, relax uh, and be caught flat-footed in any area if there was going to be some type of threat. So it was a period of, of adjustment and transition. Um, and I think that you know, this century has also been a period of great right. adjustment and transition. But I think what's been made evident, uh, certainly over the last several years, is that the challenge posed by Russia is serious and one that cannot be given short shrift at all uh, as we deal with the challenges of terrorism and proliferation and cyber and instability and humanitarian disaster, whatever. Uh, the, the Russians under Vladimir Putin are very aggressive uh, and take full advantage of opportunities to advance their interests and to hurt our interests. Mm -hmm. And now with a rising China, uh, that presents uh, even more challenges. So it's, it's, that is the, um, the life of CIA officers and leaders to um, ensure that they apportion the appropriate amount of time, effort, energy, and resources to all of these issues around the world to make sure that the United States national security interests are protected. Well, as CIA director, you presided over a rather significant reorganization of CIA, not, not just the creation of a fifth directorate, 
but also earlier when you kind of took the perceived idea that operations and analysts and everybody else should be in separate parts of the universe and separate cafeterias and everything else and brought everyone together in centers that focus on either regional areas or particular topics. Does there need, I mean, was that the beginning of what you perceived to be a necessary evolution of CIA? Are there next steps that you would tell Gina Haspel or her, you know, whoever replaces her down the road that how does CIA need to continue to evolve in order to be the 21st and going into 22nd century intelligence agency for the United States? Well, I think this agency has been very successful over the past 70 years in terms of contributing to this nation's security. But the world has changed fundamentally over the last 70 years. Uh, a lot of it is technology-driven uh, with the growth of the, the digital domain and environment that's out there and the rapidity with which things happen and uh, information and people and other things that go ar- around the globe. And so I was a very strong proponent for a number of years uh, for CIA to better integrate its capabilities so it can optimize and leverage those capabilities across all of the regions and all the functional issues. And I was a great admirer of the what happened with the U.S. military as a result of Goldwater Nichols Act, where they would integrate into these unified commands. So, uh, and people would ask me when we were going through this overhaul and reorganization of CIA. When would this modernization process, that's what we called it, Mm -hmm. when would it be over? And I said, it's never going to be over because the world continues to change. CIA has to adapt and be agile. And so I'm I'm confident that Gina Haspel, who was one of the people that I had consulted when I uh, did the reorganization, and she was a very strong proponent of it, I'm sure she will continue to be mindful that the the intelligence ecosystem uh, in terms of all the things that we have to be mindful of and to operate within that that the agency needs to continue to ensure that it's able to optimize its capabilities in that ecosystem and it may require uh, additional adjustments and refinements but I think agility is so important for CIA so that they can quickly pivot to maybe new issues that come up mm-hmm. but at the same time not lose sight of those traditional long-standing issues that they need to cover. So um, I, I think it's it's very important that, that Gina not just be uh, a person who is going to uh, speak the proverbial truth to power to policymakers as director of CIA, but also has to fulfill the CEO responsibilities. And I, I believe strongly when I was director of CIA that not only did I have to be a substantive intelligence expert uh, to report to the Congress or to the White House, National Security Council, wherever, but I needed to lead the women and men of CIA, and I needed to make sure that the agency was best prepared, postured to deal with the challenges of the future. Mm-hmm. And I'm confident that Gina is going to continue to, to do that. You served uh, CIA director when Jim Clapper was the director of national intelligence. And with all due respect to everyone else who's had that job, General Clapper set the standard for being the, the head of the ODNI. How should that relationship be? between CIA director and the director of national intelligence. Because, as you know from historically, until the creation of that job, the DCIA was the DCI, right? was the head of American intelligence. And now you have a position that under General Clapper looked like what I think the people who created the job intended it to look like. But I'm not sure it's been that way before or maybe Director Coates is working his way into the job. How should that back and forth relationship be? Well, I think it's critically important that the relationship between the DNI and director of CIA 
of all the relationships in the intelligence community, they have those, that relationship has to be the best and the strongest and the closest. And as you point out, there have been times in the past where that relationship was not that strong. Now, Jim Clapper, I think, had a number of, of attributes and benefits because he had such a, um, a, a many decades of experience working mm-hmm. in different parts of the intelligence community. He knew it inside and out. And so some of the people before him uh, that were uh, DNIs did not have that breadth of experience or even familiarity with uh, intelligence. So um, uh, when I was director of CIA, first of all, I knew Jim for many, many years, mm-hmm. had tremendous respect for him. But I also recognize that in the Intelligence Reform, Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004 that set up the Office of DNI, that separated out, as you pointed out, the role of Director of CIA from the head of the community, mm-hmm. that in that document it says that the DNI is going to be the President's primary intelligence advisor. And it also stipulated then what the responsibilities were uh, are of the Director of National Intelligence and what the Director of CIA should do. And I think it's very important for the director of CIA to recognize that the DNI is the head of the community um, and that the director of CIA has responsibilities uh, to lead the CIA and shouldn't be competing for FaceTime or trying to elbow out the, the DNI right. and to pay um, appropriate deference to the DNI on those matters, but also to make sure that you know he or she is fulfilling responsibilities as director of CIA. And I think as long as there is that mutual respect and trust and understanding on the part of both the Director of National Intelligence and the Director of CIA about what their respective roles and responsibilities are and require them to do, I think the relationship should be strong. And I, I know uh, Dan Coates. Uh, he was on the Intelligence Oversight Committee in the Senate while I was a director. Um, I think he is a very, very uh, good and smart and committed um, uh, American patriot. And I think he and Gina Haspel, uh, who I'm confident is going to get um, confirmed, I think they're going to have a very good uh, work relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, I'm confident that there's not going to be the type of, of tension or competition that might have uh, been in, in the case with, with some previous uh, partnerships. That was very well done. Um, We've had a lot of operations people on SpyCast and certainly a good amount of analysts, but I always enjoy having former senior leadership because we get a chance to talk about dissemination of intelligence, about talking to policymakers and trying to convince them about information, not what to do, but certainly give them an idea about what what the intelligence uh, picture looks like. And you served, you did this for three different presidents, for Bill Clinton, for um, George Bush, 43, and for President Obama in different capacities. Um how much does it matter who the customer is when putting together Finnish intelligence? Do you, you essentially leadership analyze your own leadership to try to figure out what's the best way to deliver finished intelligence and information to the customer? Well, well absolutely. Uh, <coughs> and I think any, anybody or company that's involved in products and services needs to understand what resonates most with the client and what the client is going to be interested in. And so those three individuals you mentioned, uh, Presidents Clinton, Bush, and Obama, were three very smart individuals, three very avid intelligence consumers, but they did have their own personal preferences as well as just traits in terms of how they would absorb information. Uh, There was also over that period of time of those uh, 24 years, (laughs) quite an evolution 
of the uh, intelligence products themselves in terms of delivery uh, from hard copy to you know iPads. Right, Obama on the iPad. Yeah, yeah. and so I, I think what the intelligence community tries to do is to uh, utilize those various technical means that's going to facilitate the delivery and the uh, digestion of, of intelligence. So I, I think it's critically important for the, uh, the, the briefers or the, uh, the service providers to um, understand what uh, their clients, how they like to receive it. Uh, but I, I believe it's incumbent upon the intelligence community uh, to make sure that they deliver, at least from a substantive standpoint, what right. the president needs to hear. Not what he may want to hear, but just only on the issues that he wants to be briefed on. Uh, that's where I think it's important that they push forward that which they believe the president needs to know in order to fulfill his or her responsibilities of the presidency. Mm. Uh, but some of the mechanisms and vehicles and uh, ways that you deliver it, that can be and should be adjusted depending on the particular maybe idiosyncratic mm -hmm. uh, traits uh, of the presence. We'll be right back after this. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero-trust-ai. If you're honest with yourself, not no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, you have to admit that Bill Clinton was one of the smarter presidents we've ever had intelligence wise, just a brilliant, brilliant man. Again, I'm not doing this in a partisan way. So I wonder how he was as a briefie because you were his intelligence briefer. Because there's a time during the Wild West of the 1990s when there's a hundred different potential problems around the world. And it's almost somewhat easier after 9-11 because it's what's Al-Qaeda doing today, what's Iraq doing today. There's, there's a shorter list of potential problems. But in the mid-1990s, you're thinking North Korea, you're thinking Iraq, you're thinking the Balkans, you're thinking Rwanda, you're all these different potential problems. Um, how difficult was it for someone that had no foreign policy experience? And Bill Clinton had been a governor beforehand. We have some younger listeners that may not remember the 1990s um, to, to have such a chaotic environment in the world and have to sit down with someone like that who I bet asked some extraordinarily good questions, but also someone that didn't have that background to fuel his question. I, I would agree with your characterization of, of Bill Clinton as being uh, a person of brilliance. His mind very much operated like a computer. Um, he had tremendous ability to uh, absorb um, information and had a photographic memory. 
And I can remember one time, as you mentioned, the Balkans, and the Balkans was blowing up when I was his briefer. And so you had so many different parties and people and all these, you know, very complicated sounding names. And I briefed him on something uh, one day, and about two months or so later, I briefed him on something else. And he said, isn't this the same guy or the issue that you briefed me on before? When And he was able to recall the details of that briefing that I had long since forgotten. <laughs> and so that those powers of recall, the powers of processing, it was like a, seeing a computer at work. Um, and being able to then integrate that, that information across the board. And he had such a, not just a breadth of knowledge, but also depth of knowledge on these issues. Um, and... Uh, you know the other presidents that I work very closely with also had you know tremendous you know intellectual ability and but uh, Bill Clinton was uh, I think unique in that in that respect in terms of um, he had this data storage in his mm-hmm. in his mind that he was able to just call upon uh, readily uh, and it was rather intimidating as a as a briefer for me to I go in imagine, there and, yeah. and talk to him when you know here is the president of the United States. Um, and trying to make sure that I was as as clear and as unambiguous as possible in terms of my presentation, making sure that I didn't mislead him by suggesting in any way that we knew something that we didn't right. know. And, um, you know, if you'd ask me questions, you know, sometimes I would know the answers to them. If I didn't know the answer to them, um, I learned pretty early, as a saying, you know, go dumb early <laughs> because you don't want to give a false impression right. that you know more about this issue. And I wasn't expected to. I, you know, I had to have a, a knowledge of uh, many issues and I usually could field a number of the questions that would come up about what was in the PDB. But if it was a, a substantive issue uh, that I wasn't that familiar with, I want to make sure that uh, I got to the president um, the right response. So right. I say, let me bring that back and, and get the experts to follow up. Well, I mean, sometimes the best answer is, I don't know, but I know who does. Yeah, right. And yeah. Go back. Well, I, I, I asked that question, like my father, when he retired, started working at a golf course in Miami called the Biltmore and Clinton liked to golf down there and met my father at one point who was a starter. A year later, saw him again and said, hi, John, how you doing? And it was like, you remembered a random person a year later and just kind of that mental walk. Part of also being a politician. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, you know, remembering faces and names, whatever else, you know, really very, very impressive. So I, I was, we haven't talked a lot about post 9-11 yet, and, and I want to skip ahead a little bit because we're on this kind of same theme about presidential decision-making and kind of understanding the intelligence. So I want to skip ahead uh, to Barack Obama and the decision in 2011 to go after bin Laden in Abbottabad because as most people out there know, intelligence agencies aren't making policy. They're advising policy. And it's finally, it's the decision makers, the politicians, Congress, the president who makes the ultimate decisions. And we've talked a lot on SpyCast before about uncertainty and about the fact that the, the agency rarely, if ever, will walk up to a policymaker and say, we know this for certain. And the different levels of certainty are, are extraordinary. And, and Mike Morell has been here earlier, and he, he very candidly talked about that day where the president had his advisor on the table and, and asked, how sure are we that he was there? And Michael Morell's response was, we were more certain that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction than we are that bin Laden is in Abbottabad. So can you talk a little bit about that decision making and, and, and how difficult it was for all the different levels of confidence that were presented to the president to make that decision? Well, the decision was the culmination of many months right. of uh, discussions, briefings, a review of the data that we had. 
because the takedown of bin Laden was in May of 2011, but it was really in the November timeframe uh, the year before when the agency first detected uh, some signs that maybe there's a senior Al-Qaeda member here in Abbottabad. And then we had a, just a very um, intensive uh, sort of ongoing engagement with the agency. I was at the White House at the time about what more was learned. And so it was a, a cumulative knowledge uh, that was, uh, you know, attained over the course of a number of months. And uh, by the time the uh, the spring came um, and we dis- discussed and decided on the options, you know, as far as what might be the ways that we could get them. And when we decided that it was going to be a dis- an assault, uh, we also then were faced with the lunar cycle uh, every 28 days because you want to make sure that you have, you know, the least illumination possible. Right, you don't want to it to <laughs> you look like Times Square when you're bringing uh, the seal. so uh, – and I think a number of us who had been tracking bin Laden for you know well over a decade um, felt it in our gut um, that uh, this was bin Laden um, because there was really no countervailing uh, intelligence or information that you know, said that wasn't him there. And we were very concerned and increasingly nervous that um, he was likely to move um, if it was him, because he wouldn't stay at one place mm-hmm. for an extended period of time. And we knew that he was, if it was him, he was, this person was there for a number of months already. So every time the 28 day cycle came up, we felt as though, you know, this might, you know, is this time we go or do we wait another 20 days, see if we can obtain additional information. And also there was concern that as the circle of knowledge within the U.S. government, um, grew as we prepared for these things, we were concerned about some type of inadvertent or, you know, intentional leak out there. So uh, we really felt that um, if we were going to strike, we needed to strike, you know, when we did. Uh, yes, the knowledge was incomplete, uh, but that's the, that's the life right. of, of intelligence. You're never going to have all the pieces of the puzzle. Sometimes you have more pieces, sometimes you have less pieces. And I remember the meeting in, in the situation room, you know, and, and uh, those of us who worked in the White House with the president met after that meeting and then met the following morning with the president. And as the president thought about it overnight. And so he asked myself and, and Dennis McDonough and Tom Donilon, um, you know, what, what do we think? And he said, we think that, you know, we think it's him and we believe we have to go. And he said, yeah, he agreed. And so um, I think everybody felt, okay, it's 50-50. <laughs> Either he's there or he's not there. And But that's the reason why we decided to go with the assault team. Right. Because, you know, sure, we could have hit it with a missile. Uh, I think it would have resulted in, you know, civilian casualties, which we always try to avoid. But we wouldn't have known for certain right. if we had killed him. That's why going in there and being able to have the up-close and personal touch, uh, we would know definitively. And we, we that's what we opted to do. And it was very successful. So you brought up the idea of hitting with a missile. And I, and I wanted to bring up that as a conversation. And, and certainly uh, – our ability to reach out and touch terrorists uh, through drone warfare has saved the lives of soldiers and pilots and anyone else that we're not putting in harm's way because we have an unmanned system there. Um, but it's been about 15 or so years since this program began, you know, unacknowledged by whomever wants to do it. But the United States government, um, uh, whatever agency you can say or not say, um, can we assess this as a success now that we've kind of looked back as a kind of a historical perspective and say the use of, of drones with all the repercussions as far as the, the you know, uh, 
recruiting of new terrorists or the the view of uh, international community like Amnesty International and other groups that have uh, argued that we've killed more civilians than we're supposed to. I'm not making an argument. I'm making their argument for them toward you. Um, is this something we were going to look back and say if we did a postmortem on the drone program as it's beginning to wrap up? Uh, is it, Was it successful overall? Remotely piloted aircraft, yes. referred to as drones or yeah. predators, um, are is a tremendously uh, powerful platform, aerial platform, to collect intelligence as well as to deliver ordnance to target. And it's been in the U.S. military inventory for quite some time uh, with additional refinements and capabilities. And it, 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 I think, has had tremendous success in terms of being able to track terrorists, uh, leaders, operatives, uh, those that are involved in the planning of these lethal terrorist attacks, uh, and to have that persistent dwell over mm -hmm. targets so that you can acquire the information that you need to give you some certainty uh, that uh, you're tracking the right people and can then deliver uh, missiles, ordnance from a distance with tremendous, tremendous surgical precision to include the ability to then even shift cold, um, which means that if the missile is approaching the target and let's say some non-combatants come into the, the target range, that the remotely piloted air, uh, remote pilots can then redirect the missile to explode in an area that's not going to hurt anybody. And so when I look back over the last you know, 10, 12, 15 years, I think it has brought tremendous capability to U.S. military counterterrorism efforts. Uh, it has been wildly successful as far as um, dismantling a large part of al-Qaeda's uh, leadership structure. Uh, it has been, I think, instrumental in preventing attacks. I think a lot of the press reports about the civilian casualties mm -hmm. are wildly, wildly exaggerated. Uh, no weapon system is perfect. Uh, no type of counterterrorism program is going to be perfect. But the number of non-combatants who have been killed or injured um, has been uh, minimal um, right. relative to the numbers that you know, were uh, intentionally targeted and killed. Uh, yes, there can be some uh, political backlash, um, but uh, these, these activities uh, are carried out with the consent of the host government. Uh, sometimes it's very, you know, uh, obvious and open, and sometimes it's much more, you know, subtle and right. tacit. Uh, but uh, I think certainly during the Obama administration, uh, I believe that those very solemn responsibilities and capabilities uh, were uh, very judiciously applied in order to uh, keep Americans safe. Right. Not that they were civilians in any way, but there have been three Americans, citizens, killed by American drone strikes, at least by my count. Uh, they were all particularly bad people, uh, Anwar al-Awlaki, his son, and then uh, uh, Samir Khan. Um, if you can talk a little bit about the process to decide uh, that that was kosher, um, that was a... Uh, I know Eric Holder certainly has come out very publicly and talked about how, in fact, due process was was followed in, in the decision to go after these three. Um, forget the legal argument. I'm wondering about kind of the the talking through it intelligence side argument about Alaki particularly because he is really the ringleader of all of it. Yeah, and I would separate out Alaki's son. Yeah, uh, a little when bit. When you said that, you know, particularly bad people, whatever, but... Um, 
when an American citizen decides to take up arms against the United States, uh, they basically, you know, are declaring war. And so, and there are a number of American citizens who have joined the battlefield, whether it would be with Al Qaeda or ISIS or, or others. And the U.S. military, in prosecuting its uh, military actions, uh, do not look at uh, folks on the battlefield and say, "This one's a you know American. This one's not." They're not checking passports. Right. There, yeah. yeah, they're they're combatants. Sometimes they're you know illegal combatants, but they're combatants who have you know again raised arms against this country. So those are, you know, in areas of active hostilities, mm-hmm. in places like, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, or Syria, whatever. Um, and for any individuals who might be U.S. persons who have joined terrorist organizations, even outside of those areas of active hostilities, they know that uh, what they are doing is uh, illegal and it's treasonous. And they know that the United States is engaged in um, kinetic actions against individuals from these terrorist organizations who are trying to kill Americans. So they know that they are vulnerable to those types of uh, actions. Uh, so people have said, well, they weren't duly warned. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. And I think they were duly warned. Would, yeah. would, it, would it make sense to try them in absentia, just at least go through the digital process of having a jury of their peers convict them? And I know it'd be hard to do with all the secrecy and sources and methods and everything else, but. And there was a, a rather rigorous debate uh, within the Obama administration. I'm not going to talk about any individual right. U.S. person. But what what is the appropriate due process for American U.S. persons uh, if they are engaged in these activities? And let's say they, they would be then vulnerable to being targeted. And uh, it was an important debate. But also I think it was decided ultimately uh, that it's the responsibility of the commander-in-chief, of the chief executive, to do what he or she needs to do in order to keep Americans safe. And the prosecution of war or military action or these counterterrorism actions to bring a branch, another branch of government, like the judicial branch mm-hmm. or whatever, into that into the actual operationalization of the activity would really infringe upon, I think, the responsibilities of the executive branch. So I can just say that during the Obama administration, there was exceptionally thorough and intensive uh, efforts to go through all of the material, go through all of the discussion, and to make decisions uh, to carry out um, strikes, if need be, um, in a manner that I think provided the uh, the sufficient due process. Right. Well, you had a commander-in-chief who was a constitutional law professor, so you would think there would be yeah, some and, thought put into this. Yeah. And so if you put it to somebody else on the outside, um, people have suggested, well, what if you got like three retired judges or whatever to come in and review the material or whatever? Well, are you going to ask them then to make a decision about whether someone should live or die? Right. You know, that, to me, that, that would not be giving a person sort of you know, due process because you're bringing something, you know, another dimension into it. it it's, a, it's, I think, an important discussion uh, and a worthwhile one. But I think at the end of the day, at least based on my appreciation of the circumstances, the situation, uh, we did what, we, what was appropriate to do um, and uh, you know, made, made tough right. decisions. So the, the day we're taping this, um, Gina Haspel was uh, was cleared out of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. 
probably before this post next Tuesday. She will be voted on by the entire Senate. So it's likely when you're listening to this, uh, we'll have a new director of the CIA, and it's probably going to be Gina Haspel. The, the big hurdle has been cleared, and that was SSCI. You've been a supporter of her. Uh, you've been publicly supportive of her. Um, I'm interested in a couple things. One is she'll be the first operations officer to head CIA since Bill Colby back in the early 1970s. Is there going to be a noted difference? I mean, we it's been since you know over four decades since someone who grew up in the operations branch will be a CIA director. Are we going to see a, a sea change there? I, I, I don't believe so. Uh, one of the great things about Gina is that, yes, she grew up in the director of operations, but she has a, uh, a breadth of experience uh, interacting with all the different components of the agency. And she was deputy director for you know a year and a half or so, uh, which gave her enterprise-wide responsibility and insight into the agency. So uh, the um, the agency's clandestine collection mission, which involves you know, technical and human collection, and its covert action responsibilities, which fall under the director of operations, uh, are critically important uh, priorities and uh, responsibilities for CIA. But CIA has other responsibilities as well. So I think Gina is going to ensure that uh, there's not going to be a skewing one way or the other in terms of what the agency does. Um, I think she's going to lead the agency with um, great uh, vigor as well as integrity and um, uh, and taking a comprehensive approach to what the agency's mission is. Do you think that the CIA made a mistake in selectively declassifying things that were very particular about Haspel in the last two weeks or so? To me and to others, uh, the criticism has been these were very particular, that there's a trust us, this is the stuff that you need to see, uh, but at the same time not releasing things because of sources and methods, of course, you're not going to do that. Um, but the argument against her from a lot of different areas wasn't necessarily just the interrogation side, which we can talk about, but it was the uh, destroying of the tapes uh, under you know command of Jose Rodriguez. Um, and it's the idea of the interrogation mission from the last 15 years or so, I mean, not quite that long, like 10 plus years. Trust us, it worked is kind of the mantra coming out of the government, not just from CIA, but the broader U.S. government. And is there a point at which you need to go beyond, not you personally, but the government needs to go beyond the trust us it worked to actually putting out real information to have a real conversation? Well, uh, some people may think that the CIA has selectively released things. I would cast it as the CIA appropriately declassified material and appropriately uh, did not mm -hmm. as a way to protect the source of methods. And I know people from the outside might believe that there is um, prejudice or bias in terms of what they do. And the CIA was responding to requests for release of information. And I know the basis as to why certain things about Gina's background were not released. A lot of times um, there are things that may have happened years ago that still have implications for source of methods. But in, a, in addition, the CIA, I think, is appropriately mindful that when certain things are released uh, in one instance or in one case, it frequently can provide um, individuals the basis to request other material right. based on that precedent. And I spent a lot of time with lawyers, and I understand that there can be a slippery slope. 
And so even things like not releasing where Gina may have served, there is a good reason not to um, if you're trying to protect uh, information that should not be released publicly. Let me ask you another question that a criticism of, of her has been from kind of the world is the view of the world of the United States and the CIA because she was involved in the enhanced interrogation program of putting someone who was so heavily uh, in the middle of all of that as a sends a message to our allies around the world about the direction that we're going. I, I don't necessarily buy this argument, but you're seeing a lot of places. So I wonder if you want to address that. Well, well I think it, it was appropriate in the hearing, the open hearing, and in subsequent letters between for example, Vice Chairman Warner and Gina Haspel, for Gina to be able to very clearly articulate her views on this matter, as well as her opposition to any type of re-institution of that program. I think that's the signal that should be sent mm-hmm. to the world. Gina is a very, very capable, competent, and accomplished CIA officer. She was involved in some very sensitive and controversial programs. She carried out those duties to the best of her ability. But that was a previous chapter of CIA's history. We're not going to repeat it. And uh, some people will point to whatever they want to to make their points. But uh, I think this was you know, a healthy airing of issues and was made very clear that while Gina's at the helm, uh, we're not going to return to a CIA detention interrogation program. And you see her as being capable of standing up to I, – th- to be perfectly honest, and again, I'll, I'll push back a little bit on this, is the idea is we may have had people – in position of CIA director when the enhanced interrogation program was going on um, that might have wanted to ethically or morally push back against it. But the argument has been from everyone from the agency is it was legal at the time. It was approved across the board at the time. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people are worried, uh, people who are thinking about civil rights and, and around the world, that if for whatever reason something happens, another 9-11 or something similar, where interrogation methods like that are re-legalized, then you're someone in a position that you can go back to that argument and say, well, they're legal again. We can use them again. Well, if they're re-legalized, as you say, that means that legislation would have to be passed. Sure. Because by law now, CIA can't do it. And that means that Congress would have to be fully involved and supportive of it. So, yeah, are there scenarios out there that the CIA may be asked to do some things in the future that not all Americans will agree with? Yeah, it's possible. Mm-hmm. But I think Gina uh, has learned firsthand the, uh, the lessons that CIA learned. They were unprepared to carry out this program. They, they, had, they were asked to do it. They stood it up. It wasn't all that well managed at a variety of levels. There were some real um, irresponsible actions that uh, were, were taken. And people did things outside of what it was they were authorized to do. But I think Gina's going to protect the institution, and she's not going to go down this road again. I know there's been a lot of discussion on the morality of it. You know, There is no national you know, moral standard. Right. Morality is something that's very subjective, uh, very personal. It's in the eye of the beholder. And um, I just uh, – I think that, that Gina is going to do what is right not just for the agency, but also for this country. Well, let me end this on a much lighter question than what we were just talking about. Uh, another kind of game changer when you were director of the agency was the public image. Uh, CIA got a Twitter feed when you were director. There, there's been a pretty dynamic change in how the agency has uh, 
talk, engage, engage yeah. the public, whether it's Twitter, whether it's working with Hollywood, whether it's former DCIAs and DCIs writing memoirs and and hosting podcasts or uh, people like Jason Matthews writing novels that become movies. Is is this the trend? Is this a good or a bad thing? Is transparency important for people? I mean, I'm kind of answering. These are kind of softball questions, but I kind of want you to talk a little bit about the decision to open CIA up, because in all honesty, the first tweet from CIA was brilliant that we can either confirm or deny this is. But that really harkens back to one of the most secret operations in the history of CIA, the Glomar Explorer operation. I mean, is there a conscious effort when you were director to engage the public because the knowledge that transparency was key? Yes. Uh, I was the one who authorized uh, that we would set up a Twitter account. I had uh, choices uh, on a number of the first tweets, and that's the one I, I selected. Uh, I do believe very strongly that even an agency like CIA, uh, which is involved in clandestine activities and covert actions, whatever, needs to be uh, transparent as much as they can uh, so to counter a lot of the misrepresentations, mischaracterizations right. that are out there. All this mystique about what the CIA is involved in. And we are regularly libeled you know, by those who have no basis to make the charges against CIA. A lot of stuff is made up. One of the greatest frustrations when I was director was that uh, all the stuff that I, I read in the papers or in newscasts, um, I couldn't refute right. because I couldn't acknowledge you know, um, the, the existence of any of the programs that were covert. And if I were to refute one, <laughs> Just by implication, then uh, you know I would either have to refute or you know allow people to think that well the other ones are real. Right. So it, uh, very frustrating. But that's why I thought that we needed to be more proactive and get out and talk, uh, but do it openly, do it honestly, uh, not with bravado, uh, but with um, you know humility, but also to show the American people that CIA is made up of. American men and women from you know fifty states right. and all the territories, and try our best. We're not perfect, but we're we're American citizens like them. We have you know children, and we you know go to the schools and churches that they go to, and to and to bring a more of a human face uh, to the CIA. And I think that is important, uh, particularly in an era when there's just so much information and misinformation right. out there. Uh, everything that the CIA says and puts out, uh, they should have great confidence in its accuracy. Otherwise, our credibility is just going right. to be, you know. Well, and CIA has always had this handicap of not being able to talk about their successes, but their failures are splashed across the front pages of every newspaper in the world. And they're reported failures. Right, reported failures. Some, some true, yeah. some not true. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Mr. Brennan, we absolutely appreciate you taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Uh, it's been a fantastic interview, and we look forward to working with you down the road in the future. Thank you very much, Vince. I enjoyed it. Thank you.